Well, Pastor Jeff kicked off this series a number of weeks ago by reminding us that the Psalms are, are a book of real and raw emotion. Uh, the, the people who wrote the Psalms over uh, a span of about a thousand years, uh, beginning with King David, uh, brought their real life experiences into relationship with God, and they brought them into the public light of community. These are community worship Psalms, and so the people rehearsed and sang these together. And they help us to, to look inside of ourselves and to see if we, are, if we are drawing closer to God or if we are being drawn away from God. And so in that sense, the Psalms give us not only a deeper understanding of who God is, but a deeper understanding of who we are in relationship to this God who made us and who loves us and wants to be in a relationship with us. So in this process, the Psalms can help to guide us in our relationship with God, in our relationships with one another, and in our relationships with the world around us. God wants to amaze us with who he is. Are you ready to be amazed this morning? Uh, Psalm 19, as I said, where we're going to be in a, in a couple minutes, uh, scholars suggest is a prayer for integrity. Now, before we jump in and talk about or, or look at what, what David wrote in Psalm 19 as a, a prayer for integrity, I want to I talk a little bit more about what this idea of integrity means from a, a more biblical perspective. See, biblically, to be a person of integrity means to be a whole person. To have the fractured parts of our lives and all of the fractured parts of our very selves, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, as the Bible talks about, be put back together to become a whole, integrated person as God intended when he made us in his image. To have our relationship with God begin to fully function in and through all of the experiences of our lives and our relationships in this world. And to have our relationships in this world with one another become an accurate reflection of the love of God who's invited us into relationship with himself is a part of what the Bible says we need in order to have all of those broken, fractured pieces of our identities and our lives begin to function in a whole and an integrated in a joy-filled manner. I'd like to suggest for us this morning that the challenge is that we live in a broken and a fractured world and our lives too cannot help become, but become disintegrated and, and broken down. And the challenge is always to find those ways to mend the brokenness within our own lives and in our own relationships. I mean, if you think about it, right, most of us, if we're, if we're honest, especially if we're followers of Jesus, we want to be wise stewards of these bodies that God has given us. But we often make choices that are based on our physical appetites, even though our minds tell us it's foolish to eat that cheesecake. We're fractured between our minds and our bodies, right? We desire to be content and at peace, we want nothing more than to, to enjoy life and, and be at rest. But our hearts tell us that in order to be happy, we need something more. And we can never really be satisfied with what we have. And so we never find that place of perfect peace and rest. 
We want to have generous and loving hearts in our relationships with one another. But our souls tell us that, that we should be easily offended and quick to tell others why my way is the right way or the best way. And to have a preference for our own needs first over those of others. And we live these fractured and broken lives even within ourselves where our head tells us to do one thing and our heart tells us to do another. In so many ways, we can become disintegrated in our passions and in our wants and in our desires and in our goals and all of the things that we want our life to be. They become this messy ball of stuff, right? And how do you sort it all through? How do you make sense of it? How do you reintegrate all of those broken pieces in our own wisdom, in our own strength? We are all admittedly sinful in our own lives. See, it becomes more and more difficult to find peace and to be content with our lives and ultimately even to be satisfied with who we are. See, according to the Bible, what we as human beings created in the image of God need most in our lives is to be reintegrated. To be renewed and restored in the biblical language is to be made whole again. And the good news is that unlike Humpty Dumpty, whose king did not have the power, even with all of his horses and all the king's men, couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again, we have a king who has the power to do just that for you and for me. Yeah, that's worth applause. And do you realize that the Bible tells us that he has made it his life's mission to do just that for us. That is the good news message of why Jesus came. So how about you this morning? Before we jump into the psalm, if you were to take some time and honestly examine your own life, where do you see the fault lines beginning to emerge? Where do you experience the cracks in your own soul, that tension between who you wish you could be and who you really are? That, that the various parts of who you are and, and who you desire to be. Perhaps it may be in your relationships with uh, those that you love the most, or perhaps it's in your relationship with God as a follower of Jesus, or perhaps it, it might even be in your own relationship to yourself. You see, what we come to understand from the Bible is that in order to have a truly integrated life, in order to be truly whole people, to live lives of integrity, we cannot separate these various aspects of our lives from one another, and they can only be truly unified in the gracious, merciful love of the God who has the wisdom and the power and the willingness to put us back together. In order to be reintegrated within ourselves, to be made whole again, we need the help and the power and the wisdom of the God who made us and who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so it's out of this knowledge and experience of personal disintegration in life that King David writes Psalm 19. Reminding himself and all the people of God as they come together in worship that, that yes, life is hard. Yes, life is broken, but there is hope and there is help. And the God of the Bible has not been silent. 
but he has shown the pathway to salvation. He has revealed himself to the world to show us how to find restoration, reintegration, healing, wholeness, and happiness in our lives. If you had a roadmap to that kind of life, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That'd be pretty cool. So let's jump in. Verse 1, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. You see, what we're, what we're seeing here from, from David in these first few verses is what scholars call general revelation. Right? There are things that God has revealed to everyone in the world. Whether, whether you're a, an Israelite or you're a Gentile, whether you, you, you believe in Jesus or, or you don't, there are things that God has freely poured out and revealed about himself to everyone in the whole world. The heavens and the skies in the Old Testament remind us of, of that creation story, God, right? When God said, let there be light, and he created the heavens and the earth, and, and, and that means everything, right? God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. And yet in the story, after he had created everything, he, 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 he said, you know what? We need to do a little bit more. And so what the NIV translates as skies, more traditionally and more accurately, scholars suggest, should read, he created the firmament. Have you guys heard that word before in reading the Bible? It's like, what is a firmament? That's kind of a weird, weird word. And how does that fit in our cosmology and understanding? You see, God created the heavens and the earth, but then he created a, a firmament. He created a protective barrier to separate the chaotic waters above from the chaotic waters below. Uh, scholars suggest that in ancient Hebrew thinking, it would have been like, a, like an upside down bowl or, or like a protective dome, a, a force field around creation to protect us from the forces of, of chaos, to create a safe harbor and a place for human relationships to thrive. Now, this is very different than our modern scientific understanding, right? Uh, the firmament was viewed as, as this kind of bubble around a, a, a plate, you know, a flat earth, and we, and we all kind of lived in this biodome. But that's all they knew at the time, right? That's as far as their, their experience had gone. Uh, and so in this, in this safety zone that God had created, we see the flood story in Genesis 6 through 9 emerge that describes how these chaotic waters that God had kept at bay by creating this firmament threatened to undo creation itself by dissolving these limited boundaries that God had created for human safety and flourishing. Now, this ancient biblical understanding, while might not be scientifically accurate based on our modern understanding, had two really important aspects that we shouldn't skip over or miss if we too quickly dismiss the ancient mindset as being primitive. You see, first in pagan and polytheistic cultures that often worship things like the sun and the moon and the stars as if they were gods themselves, 
The creation story clearly puts these firmly within the control of the one God who created them all. Secondly, this concept of a, of a firmament in creation indicates the intentionally protective grace and care that God has for his creation and for you and me. You see, in this sense, this incredible beauty and majesty and intentional care that God put into creation itself speaks or reveals to us the character and the glory of the God who made it. They testify to the glory of God without using voices or words that any human ear can hear, yet nonetheless, creation speaks. It testifies to the majesty of God as well as to the love and the care of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech, David says. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. You see, God has been revealing himself to you and me and to all of humanity from day one. Day after day and night after night, as one day passes to another, even in our own lives, the message of God's glory and the message of God's goodness represents an unbroken chain going all the way back to that original act of loving, gracious creation. I mean, isn't this what the Apostle Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1, right in verse 20, when he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, right? His goodness, his graciousness, his loving kindness have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So that people without excuse. See, no human being has any excuse, Paul says, for failing to recognize the authority and the goodness of a creator God who, who has set all of this into motion with your care, with your flourishing, with your loving experience of life in this world as his top priority. That's why he's done all of this. And like the glorious sun that continually circumnavigates the sky, bringing light and heat to the whole earth, nothing escapes God's notice and nothing can escape God's care. Which ultimately leads the psalmist directly into a consideration of the more specific revelation of God, as the scholars would say, which is his word. The word of God, the Torah of God, the, the law of God is not intended to be a, a religious rule book that we have to follow in order to earn God's love and God's grace because God lovingly and graciously created us in love to begin with. He's given us a guidebook to help us navigate life in a broken and a fractured world. In verse 7, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And it goes on from there. We're not going to have time to read all of them, but you can read and reflect on those later this afternoon. You see, through a series of adjectives describing the character of God's Torah, of God's teaching, of God's word. Each is followed by an example of how that word impacts human life. The law of the Lord is 
is perfect. Now, now again, a biblical understanding of perfection is, is this idea of wholeness or completion. God's word is, is whole. It's complete. There's, there's nothing more that you need to add to it. This essential wholeness of God's Torah is the basis of all of the other characteristics then that follow. It, it's trustworthiness to make us wise. It's rightness to give us joy. It's radiance to give us light to see. It's purity so that it lasts in eternity and it's certainty in what is right. You see, this wholeness, this completeness of God's Torah, God's word to us, not only refreshes and revives the soul. Now, remember, if you were with us when we did our soul care series, this word soul or nefesh really has to do with the whole person, right? It's the integrated whole person that we are. So, so you can't really separate your, your mind and your heart and your body. The soul is that integrating center of who we are as life. And God's word is intended to revive, refresh, restore the soul, the whole person. You see, it draws us back into relationship with God. And in this sense, God's word always leads us to repentance, which is not a bad thing. It means to return back to God, the God who loves us, the God who made us, and the God who's given us his word to guide us. In this sense, it warns us about the consequences of ignoring God's word, of going astray from our relationship with God, but it also invites us to consider the rewards of getting back on track with God. Think about it like a highway sign warning drivers of winding roads or, or treacherous conditions ahead. Who willingly ignores the big flashing orange sign on the side of the road and just speeds on through as if there's not going to be any problem, right? I guess a few people do, but there's consequences. And wouldn't, wouldn't we blame God if he didn't put the sign out there and, and, and just let us go on our merry way? But no, God cares about us. God loves us. And like a highway sign warning drivers of, of winding roads and, and treacherous conditions, God's word is intended to be a guide through the dangerous and slippery slopes of life in a broken and a fractured world. Warnings can be gifts. Therefore, it makes wise the simple, he says in verse 7. Now, he doesn't mean here people who are mentally challenged, right? It, it's not making smart the dumb. That's not what he's saying. See, the word used here for simple is, is really more related to the naivety of youth. He's talking about people who are, are, are immature and inexperienced in the ways of this world who become easily confused by their, their passions and are in danger of making destructive choices in their lives. Anybody ever had a teenager in their life like that? Anybody ever been a teenager like that? I have. <laughs> Men and women, I believe one of the biggest challenges we have in our culture today is that we are more adolescent in our thinking, in our relating, and in our lives. Then we are wise, mature, seasoned adults. And I, I hate to say it, but I think this has infiltrated our relationships in the church as well. See, these aren't arrogant, arrogant 
rebellious fools that he's talking about. These are well-intended people who do not have the wisdom to reflect on the ramifications and the consequences of their choices and behaviors. See, for those earnestly seeking guidance for living, God's word serves as a trustworthy guide to help make them wise, which ultimately is what leads to joyful living. Because we know that the choices that we're making in our lives put us on track for God's best and what he wants us to experience. That's why it says in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Do you want to find happiness in life? Trust God's precepts. Try out God's plan. Surrender yourself, as we sang, to God's design. He's created a life designed to bring us to happiness, to joy, to contentment. Not that life is ever going to be perfect or it's not going to be difficult, but even in the midst of life's challenges, God says we can find joy and contentment because joy and contentment are never going to come from the things of this world. See, God's word is viewed as precepts that if followed, lead one to experience the outcome and the intended a joy of faithful living. So a precept here has this sense of orders or directions that guide us. I mean, how many of you use GPS on your phone, right? Think about, think about the step-by-step directions that, that our phones give us when we're trying to get from one place to another that we've never been before. Those step-by-step directions are God's precepts that are designed to guide us on the journey of life. Or how many of you have been able to enjoy some new cooking recipes during this COVID-19 pandemic, right? Opportunities to break out some new recipes, try some new things, right? Well, if you've never cooked a new dish before, you've got to follow the, the precepts, the, the instructions. There's very clear guide. Now, I'm not a baker, but I hear, especially if you're baking, you've got to be really scientifically specific on following those precepts or you're going to you know, have a flop. But why do we understand the importance and the value of following the directions and following precepts in all these other areas of our life? But when it comes to God, we go, nah, you know, I think I'm just going to wing it. I got this figured out. I can handle it. Why did that happen? (laughs) Why is my life falling apart? Where are all these cracks and fractures in, in my marriage? Why, why are my, my kids so angry at me? I hate you. Why do we struggle in our culture and in our world to even get along? Because we, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and we somehow think in our adolescent immaturity that, that we know it all. And so we can just go about our merry way and we don't have to pay attention to God. We don't have to really uh, pay attention to his word. We can just figure it out on our own. But look at your news. How's that working for us? Not very well. The directions God provided for us in his word, that specific revelation that in loving care was intended to guide us to experience joyful, wise living are right. They're not crooked. They're straight. It's the straight and narrow path. It's the the trustworthy path. They don't lead us astray. 
But God's word is whole, it's complete, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's right, it's good. And yet how much time do we spend reading it? (laughs) And if you read it, how much time do you spend putting it into practice? We struggle with that. You see, this kind of guidance isn't viewed in the Bible as restrictive, but beneficial. Unlike the pagan gods of the ancient Near East, and we have to understand this context for for these Old Testament passages, they often operated with a more twisted morality than even humanity did. Right? They lied, they cheated, they stole, they were sexually promiscuous, they, they generally outdid other human followers with the sheer lack of consistent morality. You couldn't rely on these gods day to day, you never knew what they were going to do. And the fact that they were all powerful meant that they had the ability to make human life pretty miserable. And so even though you couldn't trust them, you sure as heck didn't want to upset them. And so religion became all about trying to appease the gods. Not because we trusted them or because they had any benefit for our lives, but because we really didn't want them to mess up our lives any worse than they already are. How often do we think and perhaps realize that we've allowed a pagan mindset to creep into our Christian thinking? How much of our experience of faith in Jesus Christ is about appeasing a God who's not going to mess up our life any more than it already is. And so we go to church and we give our tithe and we do all these religious things to kind of appease the God. But then just go about our lives if we have the wisdom to know how to do it on our own. By contrast, the word of God comes from the one true God who created the sun, who created the moon, who created the stars, who who put life in a firmament where where all of the, the celestial bodies could run their course. And he ordered life in a very consistent and in a knowable pattern that day after day and night after night and week after week and month after month, while life might begin to feel like drudgery, it's intended for us to know that there's a plan. And there's a design to life and that God's revealed in his word how we can live within that design. And if we live in that pattern and that design and we follow his recipe for life, actually becomes joyful. It actually becomes good. It actually becomes meaningful, deep, rich, and the best experience that you could have. God is the one who's revealed himself to be reliable, permanent, continuous, gracious, loving, all-powerful, and forever faithful. Thus, there is no wishy-washy commands based on God's whim in the moment. What he said yesterday is what he means today and is what will be true tomorrow. These are trustworthy, reliable directions for living a wise and a joy-filled life. And if you had possession of a guidebook that guaranteed a wise and joy-filled life, how many of you would buy it? How many weeks do you think it would be on the New York Times bestseller list? How much would you pay to have that recipe? How much time would you spend 
learning the recipe. Practicing the recipe so that you could experience the results that it was intended to give. See, God's word, God's instructions, God's guide for wise and joyful living is valuable and desirable for those who understand the gift that it really represents. Verse 10, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb, fresh honey right from the comb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You see, not only is such wisdom worth its weight in gold in our lives, but it is more satisfying to the soul than the the best gourmet, delectable thing that you could imagine eating. That's what honey was to them. It It was the most gourmet, delectable treat that they could find. God's word is even better than that. God's word, God's Torah, God's law in our lives is so valuable to human living, not only because it gives us the gift of warning us where the pitfalls are and where the cracks are that we want to avoid, but when we put it into practice and we commit ourselves to living it out and and we, we learn to live the recipe, it keeps us moving in the right direction, keeping us on track in our relationship with God. And in that process, what we find is that the power of the Spirit of God weaves all those fractured parts of our lives back into a unified, complete, whole person. Do we understand that there is nothing worse in life than being somebody different on the outside than we are on the inside? Do you imagine that there is nothing worse than coming to church to be somebody different on the outside? than we are on the inside. The Bible says God is not fooled. God is not mocked. You can't fool God. You can fool all of us. But ultimately, it's between you and God. How's that working for you today? Where are the cracks and the fractures in your own spirit? Where are the broken places in your life that that you're trying to hide on the inside and you're not admitting to those around you or you're not admitting to God? And maybe until this morning, you haven't even been really admitting them to yourself. Is it possible that God brought you to worship here today, not only on campus, but, but online because God wants you to know that he has a plan to put the broken pieces of your life back together? So how do we as human beings respond to this kind of revelation? Two things. First, we have to examine ourselves. But then number two is we got to put it into practice. How do you get good at doing anything? Practice. The spiritual life is no different. Verse 12. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Now see, he's starting from the beginning here, recognizing that, that, that he's a sinful human being in a sinful and a broken world. Who, who can discern their own errors? I mean, we, we, we commit sins every day that we don't even know we've done, right? Because it's just the nature of the world we live in. It, it's not if 
we need salvation. It's, it's of course we need salvation. In, in that context, then, we need to examine ourselves and, and, and give ourselves to God's word and trust and rely on the forgiveness and the grace that God provides because it's only through God's grace and forgiveness that we can begin to be put back together. It's not about being perfect. It's about being made whole. And those are two very different religious and spiritual propositions. A prayer, this is a prayer for forgiveness and to, to be brought into personal alignment with God's will and God's good pleasure. And at the very end of the psalm in verse 14, he wraps it all up with this prayer for integrity. And, and, and now all of this has been context for his, his concluding statement, right? Verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is a prayer for wholeness. This is a prayer for integrity. This is a prayer that my inner life will match my outer life and I will be made whole. And because I am whole, I will find joy and wisdom and peace in life. This is a prayer for all that is within him and all that comes out of him to be fully integrated into the love and the life of God who made him who's not only become the very foundation upon which he will build his life, his rock, but he recognizes that, that without his redeeming love and his mercy and his grace, he can't hope to experience any of these things. And so it all ultimately, as we've been saying every week, points back to Jesus. Because Jesus is God's answer to our, our, our deepest broken places and our greatest longings because only through the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, can we hope to begin to heal those fractured places in our very soul? God's revelation is knowledge of God. It's his works and it's his word that lead us to personal integrity in our lives, which is the experience of wholeness and being put back together. Where do you see those fault lines in your life today? Where do you experience those cracks between the various parts of who you are, who you would like to be, and who you know God is inviting you to become? As we contemplate on the words of Psalm 19, not only today, but in the days ahead, I want to wrap by inviting us to pray the words of Psalm 19 together, not out loud, but silently. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're watching from home, you can do this at home. If, you will, if you're interested and willing to, you can open your hands in a posture of, uh, of both giving worship, but also receiving blessing. And I'm going to read the verses 12 through 14. I just invite you to receive it not only as God's blessing, but as your prayer to God for your own soul this morning. Forgive my hidden faults, Lord. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock. So let it be for you and for me and for us this morning. Amen.